Deep in the mouth. Deep in the mouth. <laughs> That's a good one, Alan. <laughs> Deep in the mouth. Deep in the mouth. That's right, folks. New year, new theme song, new studio, new fucking year's resolutions that are never going to come true. Welcome back to the 2017 version 2.0, deep in the fucking mong. You know, they always say that when you um, haven't seen a good friend in a long time, and they're like a real friend, as soon as you see them, the focus is not, you know, that you guys haven't seen each other, but you're just so overjoyed to be back in their company. And that's how I feel with you guys. And, I, and hope, hopefully... Um, the feeling is mutual. It's um, reciprocal. Today's show is featuring the renowned international medicine man, uh, ayahuasca and cacao shaman that is Don Roberto. It is a super intense episode. It got very intense. Everything from um, the scientific method to the patriarchy to purging trauma with uh, plant medicine to addiction, to compulsive behavior and how plant medicine can help treat that, to the state of the environment. We, we got into everything. It was, it was super intense. Um, and as you can hear, I sound like I've been anally molested and that's because I've been recording this um, podcast for the last four hours. So please excuse it. it's me if I sound a little bit fragmented. Uh, very quickly before we do that though, a little bit of business. This episode, all episodes are brought to you by Top Primate. If you're looking at learning how to defend yourself, if you're looking at uh, learning jiu-jitsu, boxing, kickboxing, any form of martial arts, or MMA, which obviously puts them all together, or if you're just interested in um, fitness, if you want to get fit, if you want to get into the best shape you've ever been in, um, there is no better way to do that than martial arts. Uh, if you listen to the podcast, you know I've done I've done everything. I've done resistance training. I've done yoga. I've done everything. And I've actually had a lot of guests on the show that do all of those things. But nothing has uh, brought me to the state of uh, relative calm and um, integration and also just physical prowess that boxing does. And when I say boxing, I mean kickboxing and jiu-jitsu and everything I do at Top Primate. I fucking love Top Primate. Because, well, one, it's run by my good friend, Rowan Katsu, um, who's a fantastic, fantastic martial arts coach. But two, it just doesn't have the same vibe that other martial arts gyms have. A lot of martial arts gyms are quite intimidating. Um, there's like a, quite a distinct hierarchy. And if you're training out of a gym that has fighters, you always feel like the sort of fighters are the only ones that get to interact with the coaches. Top Primate is the exact opposite of that. It's like, it's like working out with a whole bunch of friends that just have a mutual interest in martial arts, and that's what I love about it. It feels like home every time I walk in. Beyond that, it's probably the most affordable uh, way to do martial arts in the whole country. It's like 600 bucks a month if you just want to do stand-up and 900 bucks a month if you want to do stand-up plus jiu-jitsu, and that's studying under Jacques Portelli, who's a Gracie jiu-jitsu black belt and a very very bad motherfucker indeed um, go to http topprimate.com or check out the Facebook page Top Primate uh, they've also got a really cool Instagram page with videos and stuff this episode is also brought to you by Wild Thing Moves when I'm not doing boxing I'm doing yoga and my good friend Lexi Ryman is probably the best yoga instructor that I've ever worked with 
the studio is beautiful. It's located in the Checkers Center at the end of Cape Town, even though I don't live there anymore. Um, and it is the only yoga studio that is heated with infrared lights. Now, I won't go on a, on a huge rant, but if you do a lot of hot yoga, you might notice that after a while, it gets quite demanding on the body. And the biggest factor of that is probably the dehydration. Um, it's not natural to you know, be in a 40-degree room with 100% humidity doing extremely strenuous exercise. You know, that's good once a week, but it's not good five times a week. You're going to end up dried up like a fucking prune. Um, and that is something I experienced genuinely when I, when I was doing hot yoga every day. It's just massive insurmountable levels of dehydration infrared is different because although the room is heated the type of heat it's not like convection heating it uses infrared uh, waves that aren't as hot but have a different wavelength so they actually penetrate deeper into the tissues and the muscles and the fascia and if you're using yoga for relaxation or to get rid of intermuscular or interfascial tension there is nothing as good as effective as um, infrared yoga so get hold of Wild Thing Yoga. You can go to http wildthingmoves.com or is it .co.za? Fuck, I stand to be corrected. Try both. Um, and last but not least, I imagine that some of you uh, listening to this are either electronic music DJs or producers or in some way involved in the electronic music movement. For the first time in my entire life, I've just outsourced my post-production. I've always done my own mixing and, and mastering. Well, not my own mastering. I've always done my own mixing, getting ready for, for it to be mastered overseas. And it really is the part of the process that makes me hate production. It's, you know, you, you have this cool track, you write a cool track, it's a rad idea. And then that sort of wears off and there's this two or 300 hour process where you've got to go in, out of the creative space totally into this mind-numbing, cold, objective, German, Nazi state of mind where you are totally concerned with technical levels and compression ratios and gain structure and effects routing and all this really complicated stuff. Now, I have never really gotten a boner for post-production. I can do it. I'm fairly good at it, but I've, I've never massively enjoyed it. The only part of the process I've enjoyed is that it produces results. And that means that I can take tracks that I've worked on and play them out and know that they're going to sound good. But I've always said if I could trust someone enough to outsource the post-production process, I would absolutely fucking do that and save myself the headache. And instead of like writing a track and then having to mix it for a month, I'd just hand it to someone else and write another track. Um, and that's exactly what's happened, which is why I'm a much happier person than I was at this time last year. Um, and the reason for that is because my very good friend, Mark Valsecki, and my other very good friend, Vishal Odav, have started a cutting-edge post-production facility running out of Joburg. It's called the Mixed Room Studios. And it is argue, they are arguably the only people that I would ever trust, that I would ever outsource the responsibility of my post-production to because they are dance music fanatics. They understand all the intricacies and subtleties of mixing electronic music for the international market. And they're based in Joburg. So if you're a local producer or if you're international and you're looking for someone to uh, take your music to the next level in terms of post-production and mastering, there is only one fucking group of fuckers that are able to do that. Check out uh, www.mixroomstudios.com or send an email to info at mixroomstudios.com and they'll get back to you. Uh, please get a hold of me, Facebook Deep in the Mong, uh, Twitter's at Deep in the Mong, uh, and the website is coming soon. 
This is deep, 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 deep in the mall, in the mall, in the mall. Greetings and hootenannies. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Cause it's chocolatey, don't you see? Heavens to Murgatroyd. It puts the cocoa in Cocoa Krispies. They're as chocolatey as can be. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Wait a minute. Bullshit. This is bullshit. You're bullshit. So, Don Roberto, before we get started talking about plant medicine and all the things that you do, um, and, and just to be clear for the listeners, only a tiny bit of this discussion is going to relate to ayahuasca and the sort of traditional plant medicine or what people consider to be plant medicine because you do a lot of other things, including dietas and soul retrieval and stuff that's not in any way linked to ayahuasca or any of the sort of typical plant medicine um, stuff. So what I wanted to know is how is it that you that you came to do this? Presumably at, at some point you were a sort of normal person. How is it that you came to be facilitating plant medicine ceremonies professionally? Uh, I really wasn't looking for this. Uh, absolutely, 100% wasn't, uh, you know, going, saying to myself, you know what, I think I'm going to, you know, um, become a shamanic facilitator or practitioner. I was actually uh, engaged in teaching and I'm based in Asia. And um, it, it's just, and here's again the South African connection that this this guy connected with me on Facebook and said, you know, be my friend. And he lived locally, you know, in a, in a city about 40 minutes from here. And I looked at his profile because I thought, well, okay, fair enough, who are you? And um, it turns out that he, he was interested in shamanism and ayahuasca. So I contacted him and saying, well, you know, first of all, I'm thinking, how can you do ayahuasca because it's a Peruvian plant? And um, um, he messages me back saying, well, actually... Uh, we have plants here in Asia that do analogous things. They, they, they work in the same way. So I was quite taken aback by that. And then in the same week, somebody invited me for lunch, and they're doing a PhD in business studies. We had a nice lunch together. It was very kind of normal conversation. And about the end of it, he said, I've got something for you. And uh, he reached down into his briefcase and, and, and pulled out this, this uh, vial of brown liquid. And I looked at it, thinking to myself and saying, <laughs> I don't drink coffee. And he looked at me and he said, this isn't coffee, this is ayahuasca. And I was like, what? Twice in the same week, two different people, you know, as far away as you can think of geographically from Peru, both bringing this to my doorstep. So I was like, mm-hmm, okay, this is, this is you know, you've got to be pretty stupid not to read the signs. So then the first guy uh, contacted me and said, we're going we're gonna to drink together in a couple of months it'll be the holiday season do you want to participate and i was like of course i'm being called i I'm, i recognize the calling and so i prepared myself for for that that upcoming time by observing all the requirements needed that the traditionally that i read about that you have to in order to experience this i i, I cut down on certain foods i slept away from my uh, ex-wife um now ex-wife but my wife at the time and I, I was really fully prepared in terms of, of engaging with the experience. If you're not familiar with the concept, before you do an ayahuasca ceremony or any kind of plant medicine, there's a compulsory purification process that you need to do in the weeks leading up to the session. And that involves eliminating certain foods, spicy foods, red meat, dairy. There's actually a whole list. You can pr pretty easily find it on the internet. Um, but it also involves a process of removing physical sexuality and from what i understand ideally you shouldn't even really be fantasizing during during that period now i know that's necessary for shamans uh is it am i correct in saying that that there's a sort of focus on removing fantasy as well as physical sex well <laughs> 
I, th- I think it happens, but uh, you know, it's it's the actual physicality that's more important. Actually, I think uh, within within the uh, ayahuasca experience. So the t- time approached, and I was diligent, and then the day arrived, and actually I had the most stinking cold possible, and I thought to myself, "Oh, great! What a, what a, what a day to to ha- to to engage with this," and um, so it was a daytime thing. It was, uh, which is, I know it's very unusual, but that's how they planned it. And we gathered around midday. We gave, you know, we warmed up the medicine. Uh, we gave thanks. We sat in a group. We, we, we focused on our attention. Then we drank it. First of all, it tasted like shit. <laughs> I was like, this is disgusting. And my, my, my stomach agreed with me. It was rumbling and, and very unhappy. And then half an hour later, I, I went out and I purged in the, in the, in the, um, in the flower bed. And then it was daytime, you see. And then I looked around, and I, I looked at a friend of mine, and I looked at him, and his head was on fire. <laughs> and it was like, and his his head was like a Tibetan demon, right? And I went, "This is really a, this is really strong shit." <laughs> oh my God, can you? This is really strong shit. Oh my God, and and then it hit me that just the power of this of this of this because um, I had. I, I had re- realized I was being called to, to really encounter the medicine. You don't get that kind of wake-up call uh, out of the blue for nothing. So I, I recognized this, the universe was talking to me right, right, right back in the day. And so I was prepared to die. I was like really in warrior mode. And I said, look, I'm gonna, I, I, I hear you calling me, and I'm going to meet you, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to do this. So actually when the medicine kicked in, it was so, so, so strong in terms of I couldn't even stand up. I was really, because I, I was about to collapse. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. It's, it, this is just the most insanely powerful thing I've ever encountered. Luckily, they had put tents in the garden. And basically, I went into one of the tents, sat down, took my glasses off, and I closed my eyes. And then the visions came on full on. And I just went to myself, oh, my God, this is so not recreational this <laughs> is really because there was a, a there was a numinosity and a power and a transcendence that i had never encountered in any of my experimentation uh, you know etc etc et and i've done lsd and mushrooms before etc etc this was completely on a different you know scale and so basically what happened was that uh, i saw these imx level you know complete surround even at the back of my head there were there were visions happening and i was astounded and then i felt this presence and this this intelligence within my body and i felt i was scanned from top to bottom yeah and then uh it it, it said oh okay i know who you are let me show you what happens when you die and then it took me to that place of consciousness the, the actual space of consciousness where one is without a body you know completely disembodied pure consciousness and the most shocking thing was not only was it the most expansive and most astonishing thing the amazing thing was i remembered the state it evoked great uh, this feeling of resonance like the familiarity and i said to myself oh my god i've been here before and if i've been here before that means i've died before and somehow on a cellular level, I don't know how, or, or maybe not even a cellular level, maybe on an energetic level, I recognize this. And, and then suddenly this whole very deeply embedded fear of death just disappeared. I went, well, if I've died before, I've done this before. So, you know, there's no need to fear the cycle or, or this, this process. That's really interesting because you, you're not the only person that's described that experience to me. Um, and throughout the literature is this association between ayahuasca 
and death, either an insight into death or a removal of the fear of death. Now, I know that ayahuasca translates into the vine of souls, but I've also heard it translated into the vine of death or the little death, which I know is also what we call orgasms. Is that why? Is that why um, the, the term death is sort of so intimately associated with, with ayahuasca is because there's this insight into the death process? No, this this is a. I think this is a different experience. Let me, let me just quickly explain what I what I think is, is they're, they're talk, referring to. <clears throat> Very often in in um, in a ceremony or in a, in a, in a experience, an ayahuasca experience, somebody's um, conception of self is dismantled. Right, so it's space, time, identity, all disappear, or are, are disassembled, and and that process to the person experiencing it feels like an ego death. They actually feel like they're dying because it's as, as if their, their identity is melting away. It's just becoming, you know, almost liquid or evaporating or, you know, any, any metaphor you like to use. But it feels to the ego like death. And it feels to the person because they're so closely attached to the ego that they are dying. But they're not because what's happening is that they're being, they're being restructured. They're being disassembled in order to be restructured. They're being re-educated. They're being um, connected, if you like, to the transcendent. And, and um, because you can't navigate these realms necessarily if you have this very mundane ego. And this, because the ego is a map of the world. But really, if you want to enter those transcendent dimensions, you need to up your, up, upgrade your map. And that could only happen if the map is disassembled and rewritten, basically. So you, you, the ego is disassembled, then reassembled, at a, at a later point, and it's an ego 2.0. It's a stronger. Uh, it's it's an ego that is is informed by the transcendent. Does this make sense? So um, so that's that's the little death people are talking about. They they talk about ego death and they talk about dying within ceremony, but they're not physically dying. Although it feels very much like like that, it really is a, re a disassembling and a reconstitution. Uh, and people are very significantly different after going through that experience. In fact, uh, the, the, the takeaway from that first experience was, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for all my life without even knowing it. Whereas looking for all my life was connection to the transcendent, to, to really connect with the divine, the, 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 uh, the, the numinous, etc., etc. Knowing that there was a reality beyond this 3D reality at a very deep level without even being, if you would talk to me, I wouldn't be able to express that. But when I came across it, I went, this is what I've been looking for all my life. This level of this magnitude of power is exactly what I've been searching for without being able to, uh, you know, recognize that within myself. I mean, yeah, I just didn't know until I came across it. I went, there you go. I knew it existed. You know, I'm not a muggle. <laughs> okay, so, so, so you experienced during your own sessions, wow, this, this stuff needs to be taken seriously. And once you came to that realization, how did you... Did you find a, a mentor? Did you find someone to teach you? How, how did you go about building the skill set that led you to be sort of comfortable administering other people? Well, in a nutshell, basically what happened is I spent a lot of time exploring these domains. Uh, and um, as I explored, people came to me and said, Would you, can, you, can you also sit for me? And, um, you know, I mean, can you watch 
offered me one experience this and, and I basically did and and <clears throat> there are a few times I encountered problems where people were going to some very deep states and they would almost get a reset a physiological nervous system reset and it, what I what I mean by that is they almost go back into a um, um, an infant stage like a baby stage and their motor skill their motor um, skills and everything just regresses and they have no conception of where they are they are all the ego just dissolves and it's not like a death process it's really like they are just being rebooted and 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 their eyes are opening and closing and, and then the mouth is like a baby thing and they're trying to put their uh, um uh fist in their mouth and they're flailing and which is fine for a baby but when you have a six guy who has no motor control and is big <laughs> And it's it's strong, then that's a bit of an issue, right? So, uh, you know, I I basically decided I need to upgrade my skills because also I, I also have the you know very much the sensation of uh, a deep sensation of the sanctity or the sacredness of this work because you know you're not just working on a physical level as in body work or you're engaging someone cognitively as in talk therapies. You're really um, fundamentally working with them on a spiritual level on the level of soul the level of spirit something which is not necessarily recognized within normal modalities but and so it, it there's a there's a there's um there's a duty to 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 really be humble around that and to be to have respect around it and to and to do due diligence in terms of you know there are a lot of people out there who read up on ayahuasca and they go, I can do this, and they go off and do it, and they have no idea of really the territories they're entering, and the the gravity of of some of the things that can come up, and, and some of the processes people can go through, some very very powerful serious processes uh, that sometimes span generations, sometimes you know span um, the going to the ancestral lineage or there can even be uh, a curse that the person has been carrying through, the, through, through their ancestral line. Uh, they can even have um, entities attached to them. You know what I'm saying? There's a whole, there's a whole playing field of, of, of possibility of danger. And, <clears throat> and I encountered some of these things and that's why I decided that I needed to train, you know? Yeah, I'm always really amazed because there is this sort of culture of like pop-up shamanism, I guess you'd call it, where people are firstly advertising ayahuasca ceremonies publicly in groups on Facebook. And I've heard a couple of stories of people who, for example, gone to Peru for their first time a couple of months ago, a year ago, and then a couple of months later initiating or conducting their own ayahuasca ceremonies, which, as I've expressed before, and I've, I have expressed this viewpoint before, I find that pretty irresponsible. What you're saying to me about the length of time required to train and just how serious the whole uh, training process is for a shaman, I've heard that before. And where I heard it was actually from Don Howard Lawler when I was in Peru. But my question to you is, once you knew that you had to do that sort of training and how serious it was, how did you go about found, finding a teacher? Because I imagine that wasn't a very easy thing to do at the time. There was a woman living in the city uh, 40 minutes from where I lived who I'd, I'd met. And, and she had sat with somebody in the States like 40, 50 times. And this is a proven woman. So, um, and she had learned a lot of the songs. So the next stage, I thought, well, maybe the best way to hold the space was to sing these songs because I'd heard about the song, the songs which called Icaros, but uh, I thought they were gifted from the plants. And because I hadn't received the gift, I decided to keep quiet while I sat for people because I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to fake it. I want to. I want to. You know, legitimately um, have the songs. So when when I had some of these people kind of freak out. Uh, and flail and, 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 and go through this deep reprogramming, a reset, reboot. 
I decided to connect with her and I said, can you um, teach me these songs? And her reply to me was, I can, but there's somebody even better than me. And they're in Japan right now. Why don't you write to them? So I wrote to them and I explained my situation. And, uh, and I said, I'll pay for you to come over. Please, you know, show me, for, you know, have, uh, we can do a few ceremonies. So he came over and that was the first time I encountered the Ikaros. And it took the medicine to a whole different level because I realized that the Ikaros were the driver for the medicine. They really, they really push it along and working in synergy with it and actually control the space in a much more um, elegant way. And he said to me after the three ceremonies, which were just, I mean, I could talk about those, but they're just, they were amazing. Essentially he said, if you think I'm good, you should meet my teacher, who is Christina. And I said, well, where is she? Well, he said, well, she's in Peru, but she goes to Costa Rica. And about a month later, I had an invitation to go to Costa Rica to meet her. So I took it. I took that opportunity and I flew to Costa Rica and I sat with her. And it was the most powerful thing. I mean, I, I went in with some, with some arrogance because I thought I've done this like 50 times with, with this brew. But this is the first time I encountered the Peruvian brew. Okay. And I, I crawled out of the Malocca, out of the, the space with on my hands and knees in tears, saying to myself, oh my God, oh my God, I didn't know I was this sick. Because essentially what that medicine was doing is saying, great, you've done good work. Well, let's really roll up our sleeves now and really do some, you know, healing. And, you know, you're carrying things you don't even know you're carrying. And so what, I'm going to come back to what you were saying about uh, self-healing. That, that process of self-healing, I was in the presence of somebody whose energetic uh, the vibration and purity was much, much higher than mine, right? They'd done the work. They were carrying an extremely high vibration of purity. And so, actually, when she began to sing, everything in my, in, in, deep within me, right down to the cellular level, just rejected her and hated her. A real repulsion which I understood later what that was about. And <clears throat> so basically, um, because she's at such a high vibrational level, she can call stuff out. Right? She can call out the darkness out. You, so a general rule of thumb is you can only go as far uh, in the process as the person leading you has gone themselves. So if they don't do this work, if they don't do this um, personal transformational healing work to really talk, then you know you're, you're 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 there's no way you can actually reach those deep dark spaces because they haven't been there and they don't know how to take you there, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's something that I I really wanted to focus on in in our recording is this um, firstly the seriousness of this whole thing as as you've described, uh, and secondly the you know, the length of time it takes you to get capable to navigate that world, which is why I'm so sort of against this culture of pop, pop-up shamanism where guys are doing their first session last weekend and now they're conducting for other people. I think that, uh, I don't know if you're aware of Don Howard Lawler. He works out of Spirit Quest in Iquitos. Uh, I heard of him through the Joe Rogan podcast and ended up going to Iquitos for two, two weeks to work with him. And some of the things that he was saying to me about about the length of time and the seriousness of the ritual and the uh, seriousness and care that's taken in the preparation of the medicine. Uh, and he was saying, you know, it is the height of amateur to, for example, pr- have a session and 
give people medicine that you have not made yourself because the medicine contains the energetic signature of the person who's preparing it, the mood that they're in, their intention. So to be buying sort of random ayahuasca for some random dude and then feeding it to people is actually grossly irresponsible. Um, and it really put things into perspective because for years before that, I had been, for example, um, administering San Pedro to myself, which I, I never had any bad experiences. It was challenging, but it was it was always navigable. Um, but the way that he worked with Wachuma, which is obviously just San Pedro in, in that Peruvian context, I was blown away. And I, I said to myself when I, when I left there, I'll never do it again without the ritual, without the preparation, without the fast, without the um, mesa. Um, so yeah, I was, I was just absolutely mind blown at how much goes into it. And also then by extension at how much amateur sort of rubbish is going on in the world when you compare it to a guy like that or, and obviously as soon as I read your post, I said, um, you have the same sort of quality that I, that I found in, in, uh, Don Howard, which is that you, your explanations are extremely well worded. You're extremely coherent. There's no sort of new age, huffy puffy fuckery in the way that you talk. Do you know what I mean? It's very straightforward. Now, obviously, I come from an audio or sound background. So the relationship between plant medicine and um, these songs or the whole, this whole sort of sound aspect of, of plant medicine is very, very fascinating to me. I pulled up an article earlier that describes what an Icarus is. And I just want to read from that article. And then I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about how these Icarus are actually acquired or transmitted. So I'm quoting an article now. Uh, Icarus are shamanic songs and chants learned directly from the spirits of the plants through rigorous plant dietas or from a human maestro. The Icaro may be offered for protection, to summon healing spirits or to conduct healing energy to the patient through the curandero or healer. They're used to communicate with the spirits of the natural world, to heal the sick, and to provoke different kinds of visual displays or visions in patients medicated with ayahuasca. The most potent of these songs are those learnt from the spirits themselves through the vegetalista dieta or those received in the dream visions which often follow an ayahuasca ceremony. Okay, so pretty clear about what an, what an Icaro is. But I'm a little bit confused as to how you actually get these Icaro because I've had some people tell me you can only get an Icaros from a plant itself. So you've got to sort of do like a vision quest or a dieta or a purification process. And then other people have told me that they've obtained uh, plant songs which their teacher or their maestro or their mentor obtained directly from a plant but were then sort of handed down to them sort of from generation to generation as part of their training process. Which is it? Are they both true? Can you obtain an Icarus from your shaman or from the plant directly? Um, and which is more common? I mean, actually, the, 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 the direct transmission from master to student is probably the most uh, common ways. The actual download is rarer, but it does happen. So in the beginning level, it's often where, you know, here are some Icarus to learn, uh, you know, that, that work. And also, um, but really... Um, the way I work now and the way the Shapipa work is it's very much in the moment. There are no set melodies in, in the sense we, we, it's about intention and the melodies come through you as, as you're working. So um, learning set songs do, doesn't really you know, work in that way because every song is created on the fly according to what we see and according to what needs to happen. So whether we're you know cl op opening a diet or whether we're cleansing somebody or whether we're protecting the space, it's it's basically you know happening in that moment. So it's it's freestyle improvisation a lot. 
but you do have you need you do need a you need you need a strong basis uh, and 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 controllable language to be able to do that plus what people don't realize is that it's it's not just about music you know there are some practitioners out there they say yeah you know uh, I, I've flown in an airplane. I can pilot this thing. Mm. What they do is they put music on. They put a CD on of, of of new age or you know possibly even other people singing Icaros. It's not the same because you need that direct human agency and intentionality, that quantum field of consciousness to drive the thing. Look, let me tell you, I, I may not be any sort of shaman, but if I ever got to an ayahuasca or plant medicine ceremony um, and the guy was sort of streaming shamanic music through his iTunes, like on, through the hi-fi in his lounge, I would definitely take that as a, as a bad sign. I'd probably, I'd probably run for the fucking hills. I mean, I put music on, but right at the end, right at the end when people are phasing out into, into, into back into kind of, you know, everyday and, and reality just to hold the space. But I've done all the work. I mean, it's just, it's just, that's the proper time I feel to do that kind of thing, to put a, a you know, a mantra. So. I actually remember a story uh, in the book On the Warrior's Path by Daniele Bolelli, which if you haven't read, really, really cool book. And he describes how he goes to seek, he, he hears of this really famous Kung Fu master that's living in San Diego, wherever he is. And he goes and sort of tries to convince this old sensei to share his body of knowledge about Tai Chi. And the guy makes him come back like 50 times and show that he's serious before he even considers taking him on as, as an apprentice. And I would imagine it's a, it's a similar sort of thing where these guys aren't just really that keen to share their, their Ikaro with you. Oh, well, I mean, they have, they have a choice. They have a decision point whether to share that or to keep that private. You know, or, or, and, sometimes, and sometimes the plants themselves say, this is just for you. You know, it's very common in this work to, to get a download or some information, and the plant specifically says, this is not to be shared because it's in the containing of this within your, within your knowledge base that it has power. The moment you share it, you're going to dissipate the power behind this. So I've been told things that I've been very, the plants have been very insistent. Do not tell anybody about this. So let's imagine now that there's someone out there who um, has aspects of their personality that they find disagreeable. So maybe they're OCD or they're uh, an addict of some sort or they have to take a concerta to concentrate or they you know, can't get to 10 a.m. in the morning without you know, masturbating four times on U-porn or whatever the fuck it is, like some, some uh, compulsive behavior that they're not in, in control of. Or maybe they have to be in a relationship like with a new person every four days. <coughs> not pointing any fingers. Um, so, so, so my question is, is it like common for people to go into a session, obviously a supervised session with the Icaros, with some particular obsessive compulsive behavior or some non-volitional aspect of their personality and actually experience in the session that this part of them that they, that they don't like is getting purged out, is actually getting removed or um, they go through this like catharsis and then, and then they observe after the session that this personality aspect has changed or shifted or improved. It is common. So to give you an example, a good friend of mine sat with me. Uh, so the first time she sat, it was um, she had this profound teaching of what love was. Because actually in her childhood and her family dynamics, she had never experienced love. And the medicine actually says this is what it is. It is. This is the emotion. This is the whole you know thing around it. Now, her second session... <laughs> the medicine basically took her, uh, she was in the bathroom, and it laid out the entire schematic of the way she thought. 
because she was actually suffering from OCD and was suffering from an inability to finish stories or she was always jumping from one idea to the next and never actually coming full circle or closing anything. So um, it, it, it held her in that space for about two hours and she was shown without, you know, make no mistake, she was shown very, very clearly the, the dynamics and, and patterns of organization of this thinking and she purged and purged and purged and purged and purged. And um, what was interesting is that not only did she become much more focused and clearer in the articulation of her ideas and, you know, before no one could listen to her, she began to tell a story and we'd all leave the room because we, we knew it wasn't going anywhere. Right? We'd be there for about the next 12 hours. You know, that kind of person. Anyway, lovely person, but never finish a story. A bit like me right now. <laughs> but, <clears throat> so that was the th first thing. It, it sorted that out. Secondly, as a corollary, she was suffering from arthritis, right? I mean, it was she was in her early thirties and could barely open the you know open the door with a key because it was so painful. That completely cleared up. Now, all I can say is this is anecdotal, of course, and I'll never make any you know, grand claims for what this medicine can do. But in terms of this personal experience, it seems to indicate to me that there was some kind of a psychosomatic connection between the thinking patterns that she, she was were really deeply ingrained and how her body physiologically responded to that. You know, and and in, in taking out the the, the deeply embedded um, looping behavior and non-closure kind of uh, expressive uh, modalities, it actually impacted her body in a very very significant way. So yes, to answer your question, the medicine does have a deep intelligence about what it's going to work with and when it's going to work with. It. Deep in the mind, deep in the mind, deep in the mind. <laughs> Deep in the you know, the whole theme of um, compulsive behaviors and addictions and um, those sorts of things, they, it's a recurrent theme in the podcast. It's something that I keep on coming back to. Obviously, that's because I am personally a maniac who has, you know, I've never been addicted to any specific thing. But I certainly have the brain structure of an addict, which is that I become very obsessed and very reliant on external or exogenous things or substances or stimuli to enter into certain states or achieve certain things in my life. Okay. And I'll, you know, for the most part, those things for me are not bad things. So, you know, I have coca leaf and I use marijuana and I'm addicted to exercise. And there've been, there've been other times where I've been addicted to various things including, you know, sometimes emotional uh, validation or attention or any of the other things. But it's something that really fascinates me because I think that as a society, um, as a species, human beings have never been in a, in a more wealthy, more comfortable, more abundant um, time. There's never been a more abundant time in human history. We have more leisure time than we've ever had. We have more money, more economic stability than we've ever had. We have more access to information than we've ever had. Yet, as I look around, I notice that people are increasingly um, reliant on other things like concerted to concentrate or antidepressants to get through the day or alcohol and tobacco and drugs to be sociable or communicate socially in any way whatsoever. So it seems that there, you know, I read a stat that 
between one in six and one in ten people in Western countries are on SSRI antidepressants. That's a really intense statistic. If you think that one in ten, if it's, even if it's one in ten people, has to take medication for depression, and obviously that's unprecedented. We've never had that sort of um, percentage of the population who's relying on medication to lift themselves out of psychological depression. Now, obviously, ayahuasca is something that lends itself, that is sort of indicated in the treatment of all these, quote unquote, social diseases that we have in the West. Everything from depression to addiction to compulsion to, you know, all, all, that whole myriad of, of diseases um, or disorders rather than diseases. So, hold on, hold on. Let me just catch my train of thought. Where the fuck was I? Uh, diseases. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, something which... I read, which really fascinated me, um, which relates to this idea of addictions and compulsions. I read about the link that's being suggested between early life trauma and compulsive behaviors or addictions. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try paraphrase this whole um, scientific revolution that's going on on at the moment, and I'm probably gonna fuck it up. So just excuse me if I butcher it. But in layman's terms, and in a nutshell. If you're a, a kid who's getting bullied or you undergo some sort of early life trauma or you are exposed to some unbelievably traumatic incident or a series of low-level trauma, for example, bullying or whatever, um, what happens is that the brain gets so flooded with cortisol and adrenaline and the neurotransmitters and hormones that are related to stress, right? And as an adaptation... The brain says, look, it can't stay in such a a state of high alert and stress for very long. So it down-regulates sensitivity um, to things like cortisol and adrenaline, right? So Yeah. I mean, what you're saying, Ryan, is basically people have become numbed out because of the trauma. Over over a consistent period of time, uh, the whole brain chemistry changes and and, and they're seeking to feel alive again, essentially. Okay, and that makes total sense. You get traumatized, the brain says, can't deal with this, I'm going to make myself less sensitive, and in so doing, it makes itself less sensitive to all the good shit as well. And that has left them much more predisposed to addictions because they need that dopamine, man. I got to get me some fucking dopamine, man. Anyway, that was a very long rant, but what I, what I wanted to ask you is, from what I understand, the reason why ayahuasca is such a potent uh, cure for depression and anxiety and addictions is because it's able to, and it's the only thing that is able to reset the neuronal sensitivity in a human being's brain so that it's, it's, it's back to its default level of sensitivity to cortisol or adrenaline or uh, dopamine or serotonin or any of these fundamental neurotransmitters. Abs- 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 absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll say that you know, it's understandable that if people have been, as you said, down-regulated, uh, in terms of the synaptic function and uh, brain chemistry, that they are, have this innate desire to want to upregulate and to achieve a sensation of being fully alive and engaged. Uh, the problem is that with with the usage of substances, it's it's basically you know you, you're going to be on that treadmill and continuing to to to, to chase that because you're not going to essentially uh, regulate on a permanent basis this this ad- adaptive mechanism. And so, you know, it's, it, it, you very rarely hear people saying, yep, that's enough coke for me, thank you. You know, I mean, it tends to just engage, and people tend to want more and more of it. So, um, whereas 
it's very interesting because Gabor Mate, who is uh, um, uh, originally a Hungarian uh, um, family doctor living in, in Canada, but has extensive experience working with, with uh, hardcore drug uh, addicts. In all his experiences, in all his relationships and dialogue and, 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 and treatment of these people, the one constant that comes through with all their stories is that they have been deeply, deeply traumatized. And, and, and uh, it's very rare within uh, the management of substance abuse to really go for that, to really actually resolve that, to really seek to resolve that. It's usually about management of states or it's about, you know, management of the, uh, the compulsion or, or, or to wean yourself off. It's the substance itself which is problematic. And here's, here's his point of view, which I actually agree with, is that it is, unless you can resolve the traumatic imprint or the traumatic footprint within the psyche, within the, within, the, within the nervous system, you're not going to change very much. So that's the focus. And that's what ayahuasca does, actually. It helps not only to, to re-regulate the chemistry, but it also helps to change the narratives at a quantum level to really create other possibilities, other timelines, to release the energetic imprint of what has happened so that people can really truly start to heal. In addition... The other thing about uh, the working with substances with, 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 uh, that is happening all over the world and extensively is that I actually personally believe, and I say this having experienced these transcendent states, I actually think that uh, people are either trying to self-medicate, which is what you just said earlier, but also they're homesick. They're actually homesick, homesick for the transcendent. They're, they're, it's maybe not something they can articulate or articulate consciously, but that's, in a sense, what I think a lot of people are looking for. There's this deep sense of something missing in terms of, is this it? Is this 3D reality, 3D reality only the, thing, the only thing that's going? And there's a sense, perhaps very deep within, that there's more, and they're looking for more, and it's just why they try to push the consciousness, the limits of consciousness, to try and remember and discover that. And that's something that ayahuasca can do. It can not only do the deep deep healing, it can also bring us into remembering, accessing and experiencing these transcendent states and dimensions of which we, they are our heritage. And that's why I feel there's so much uh, extensive uh, usage of substances to achieve altered states because people are trying to remember where they came from, who they are, and where what our, what our purpose is here on this planet. I think it's pretty interesting to to note that underlying the entire um, shamanic worldview is the idea of, I guess you'd call it pantheism, and that's that everything from the trees to the rocks to the stars to the bacteria to the cosmos itself to, you know, from the biggest component to the smallest component of the universe down to a single-celled organism or a proton or a neutron or a subatomic particle, everything is alive. It is an extension or an individuation or a manifestation of this one unified field of consciousness that's pervasive throughout the universe. Okay, um, and that's a concept that, aside from sounding really beautiful, I mean, it's a really cool line to you know tell a chick at a party if you're trying to sweet talk her. But that's because it's such a beautiful idea that the entire universe is um, imbued with or inhabited by spirit. And it's the only worldview that's ever made sense to me. I mean, the you know monotheistic idea that there's you know one 
bearded old man god up in the sky that has created the universe basically for the express purpose of um, having human beings follow his commands and worshiping him and um, controlling when and when they can when they can and cannot ejaculate that that's never really made any sense to me and science is alluring to an extent because it, it claims to be based on evidence but it only um, takes into account one specific kind of evidence, evidence that can be measured with the five senses, uh, quantified and r- repeated. And of course, there are some levels of experience that are either too subtle or too transcendent or don't fall into uh, that sort of physical phenomena. And that's where science, I think, maybe does itself a disservice. So the pantheist worldview has always resonated with me. I've always... Um, I've always believed that everything is sort of inhabited by, you know, an, an overmind or is an extension of this fundamental intelligence that runs through all things in the universe. So that's just a little bit of, of preamble to the question. But really the question is, assuming that pantheism is correct and assuming that um, all things, including plants, are inhabited by an overmind or an intelligence or a spirit, why is it that plants want to be in a in a relationship with human beings why is it that they provide chemicals which are beneficial for us why is it that there's such a thing as a shaman plant or human plant relationship um you know why do plants contain chemicals that can help human beings cure addictions or reset their um neurological functioning and then you know beyond that onto the everyday level Uh, Plants seem to contain chemicals on a number of levels, chemicals and nutrients and substances that are just innately beneficial for human beings. All of our nutrients come from plants. Uh, Plants contain chemicals that extend lifespan, that downregulate bad genes, that provide nutrients, that, you know, even something as as simple as a, a, a fructose sugar or whatever. It's designed to be eaten, to be absorbed, and to be used, and to benefit the human body. So it seems that whether you're aware of it or not, we are in this relationship with plants, that we are very reliant on the chemicals that they produce. Why is it that plants produce these chemicals, and why is it that they have an interest or a, um, or a tendency to A, produce chemicals, and B, get involved with human affairs at all? Traditionally, I mean, the indigenous people, the indigenous shamans have worked with plants because they are part, they are themselves are very much an intimate part of that, the fabric of, of nature. And so um, the, the relationship has been also been one of friendship in terms of um, plant, these certain kinds of, I mean, like you said, not all plants are particularly interested in human beings, but there are certain ones that are willing to be ambassadors, like goodwill ambassadors, and to reach out to help us to heal. I mean, why, why does any plant provide its medicine in terms of a physical form? It's a gift, basically. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a gift that somehow magically works with our physiology to, to heal us, whether this is dandelion or, or eucalyptus or a whole range of you know, natural her, her, herbal medicines. I think that's a, that's a beautiful answer to that question, is that, um, you know, what is nature but a gift? but a gift by whatever it is, whether it's Donald Trump or uh, the monotheistic bearded God that's created the universe as we know it, uh, however it came to be, I think that you'd have to be hard-pressed not to look at, at nature and its sort of infinite bounty and beauty 
and agree that at some level it has been gifted to us and that we should um, do our best not to fuck it up really and to be appreciative of it, be appreciative of it. And that's perhaps why the pantheist uh, worldview almost has like an environmental ethic at its absolute core. You never ever find a tribal pantheist society that is in any way abusing natural resources or not being extremely respectful or grateful um, or connected to and sustainable in the way that they that they treat the natural world. So definitely something that we can learn from from in the West. And that sort of brings me to my to my next um, point, which is we I was talking earlier about about monotheism and about religion and about how underlying monotheistic dogma. Uh, so if you look at Judeo-Christian, Islamic, all the traditional um, monotheistic religions, the idea underlying them is, A, human consciousness is the only form of consciousness that is relevant. B, this God has created the physical world um, with God at the top and then a pyramid of con- consciousness underneath it, humans at the top of the pyramid, and all other life forms beneath us. And that fundamentally, we are here to exploit nature for our own purposes. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but um, it is a little, a little bit of a tangent, but it's something that's very interesting. Uh, people always talk about evidence-based medicine or evidence-based practice in science. And people always talk about the scientific method being a method that you use to obtain information that is valid and valuable and repeatable, right? What most people don't know, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, so apologies if I'm repeating myself, the scientific method was invented by arguably one of the craziest motherfuckers that has ever lived on planet Earth, a dude that was Hitler-level, batshit crazy. His name was Francis Bacon, and he was the uh, Pope under King James II in the 14th or 15th century, okay? And his whole uh, way of thinking was that, and I know the feminists are going to love this because it screams patriarchy, um, nature nature was a mis- mischievous harlot, um, a, a, a conniving witch, a mysterious, evasive woman that needed to be tortured to reveal her secrets to us men, the God-ordained custodians of the world. And he invented the scientific method as a means by which, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically his quote says, we will use the scientific method to strap nature to a table and torture her until she reveals her deepest secrets to us so that we may, as, a, as, as men, the God-ordained species, exploit her and extract from her every last bit of her, of her offering, every last bit of resource that she has to offer us. Now, A, whoa, that's fucking creepy. B, not many people understand that, you know, when, when you hear feminists saying that um, science is inherently patriarchal, a lot of them just don't know what the fuck that even means. But the, the smart ones um, are actually, there's a lot of truth in that statement because nature was built off ideas that men were ordained by God to extract and pillage and rape and take from nature what they wished because we were given nature almost as a gift for exploitation. Similarly, 
um, similar to the way that a man is given a young woman in a religious, you know, organized religion uh, marriage context where you're given this 12-year-old girl to fucking extract and pillage your way through, which is, again, pretty, pretty fucking twisted. Anyway, so that was a long rant, but where this has led us in terms of plants and our relationship to plants is instead of forming a relationship to what you've described as the plant spirit or the entity or the whole um, the whole plant, the holistic take on plant medicine, what we do in the West is we look for a lead molecule, a lead chemical. So, uh, you know, in marijuana, you get uh, CBD or THC, the ca- cannabinoids. But marijuana is much more than just cannabinoids. It's got terpenes and very, very complex uh, chemistry underlying the the uh, cannabinoids. And you might look at something like white willow bark, where we, um, where we found things like acetic cyclic acid, which is disparin or aspirin. And what we did there again is we took this plant that's been used to cure headaches and uh, muscle tension for thousands of years. And instead of looking at the, the plant as a whole, we isolate one lead ingredient, which is acetic cyclic acid, and we synthesize it and patent it and give it on its own. Now, the thing is, you can eat white willow bark. You could eat kilograms of white willow bark. It'd probably be really good for you. It's anti-inflammatory. It's totally non-toxic. If you eat a box of aspirin, you are going to fucking die. And that's because, in, in truth, we were never really meant to isolate a single molecule out of uh, a natural uh, a natural plant or a natural medicine that has hundreds or thousands of molecules that are cooperating in this very intricate and intimate molecular dance. So, and there, I'm going somewhere with this. A lot of people um, think that because ayahuasca contains DMT, that taking DMT, synthesized DMT, or ingesting synthesized DMT is analogous or going to produce a similar result to taking ayahuasca in a, ritual, in a ritualistic ceremony. I'd like to, to ask you to just elaborate on that idea for a bit. DMT is a very specific kind of experience. I mean, it does propel you into different dimensions. However, um, what's different about it is two things. Okay. Well, um, let's have a look. Three things. Uh, number one, um, there is essentially, you're basically going, the difference is like coca and cocaine. I mean, one is synthesized from the base, base elements. And it's a very different experience and a very different kind of um, approach and, and, and uh, interaction and dynamic mm. than somebody indigenous working with coca and working with it in a, in a specific setting. Okay. You know, the way that cocaine is used is extremely different and very abusive in many ways. Yeah. So <clears throat> DMT is, is similar in that sense because, um, again, you're going to get propelled into dimensions, but there's no plant intelligence behind that mm. so there's no actual guidance and, and 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 container and structure in terms of your experience and some people report you know it is wondrous i'm, I'm pretty sure but they report often some pretty scary uh, experiences i mean the uh, the book the spirit molecule by rick strassman mm. dr rick strassman is a compilation of, of very different uh, experiences they, uh, of, they of, seem to of, be of, of a cohort of people yeah they seem to be a lot more bizarre 
it's sort of overwhelming yes. and bizarre and as you say lacking some mm-hmm. sort of context or meaning people i've heard people saying it's like god shitting on your brain or it's like you know it's 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 like going through this very intense experience that you can't really compute or metabolize afterwards it's extremely hard to to exactly. bring anything metabolize, back digest integrate okay plus it can be very scary there are numerous reports even within the the Strassman cohort of of uh, people who end up on an operating table in an alien dimension with aliens surrounding them, surrounding them saying, oh, good, we've got another yeah. one. No, <laughs> but doing all kinds of experiments. I mean, it sounds like you're being facetious, but that is genuinely part of, of, the, of the book in that Strassman. Mm. So for, the, for those mm, of you, you who, don't, who don't know the context, um, there was a very famous, what is he, a neurochemist, a neurobiologist? Or a psychologist? He's a doctor. He's a doctor, he's okay. He's, a, he's, a, he's an MD. Okay, he's an yeah. MD. Anyway, so he um, does the first sort of legal experiment with DMT, which is synthesized. It's not contained in, inside a plant. And he injects it intravenously into a couple of hundred subjects and then collects these subjective reports of people who are, who are saying what happened to them. And although each report is different, there is this really freaky... Uh, coherence, the similarity that that runs through all of them. And the the things I noted were, as Don Roberto is saying, there's these reports of being transported into an alien dimension. There's this constant um, feeling that this uh, dimension is technological or machine-like in nature, which I found really strange because um, there's certainly a sense of being sort of transported to a different realm in the plant medicines. But I, 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 I don't think that realm feels very technological to me. Um, anyway, so people mm-hmm. constantly report this, yeah, this alien computer-like, machine-like technological intelligence in this DMT realm. And then, as Don Roberto was saying as well, this, this uh, experience of like waking up on an alien operating table, having your anus probed by metal fingers, or something, or something like that. No, but that, I mean, they are they are being subjected to, to some kind of experiment or or invasive procedure. So. Um, which doesn't happen when you're working with ayahuasca. Mm, I mean, scary. and you can have different kinds of challenging experiences, okay. but there's definitely a presence which is yeah. guiding and, and and monitoring and mentoring your, your your development. So much much different. So, in your opinion, then, Don Roberto, because I think you've struck on something very interesting here. Um, in nature, we have these very complex plants that have very complex sort of chemistry, right? So if you look at like you gave the example of coca leaf. Mm-hmm. We obviously, everyone knows that coca leaf has this ingredient, cocaine hydrochloride or, or cocaine salt, which is its quote unquote active ingredient, the primary ingredient, right? And then as you're saying, then in the native mm-hmm. use of a plant like coca, that primary ingredient isn't really the focal point. They use the entire plant, which has hundreds of different chemicals. And the primary ingredient may, may provide exactly. stimulation, but it's firstly that stimulant effect is buffered by all the other chemicals, so it's not nearly as addictive or harsh or toxic or um, overstimulating as chemical cocaine is. Um, so you know, if you've never used, firstly, if you've never used cocaine, it's incredibly overstimulating as an isolated stimulant. And if you've never used coca leaf, it's not like that at all. It's actually a really uh, sort of wholesome, holistic feeling of focus. It's not this overstimulated sort of feeling. So. Would would you say that it, I like the way you describe that? Oh, do you like it? Thank you, thank you. Um, well, as you know, I, I'm yes. It's, it's like a holistic. Yeah, it's it's probably the most work positive substance I've ever used. It makes you feel very, very present mm. and focused and coherent and able mm. Mm. Um, to deal with whatever's happening in the moment. Which um, 
which I like. And of course, if you chew too much, you can become overstimulated. Just like if you drink 12 espressos, you can become overstimulated. But it, it's not sort of an inherent part Absolutely. of its nature, I don't feel. Mm-hmm. So, so, so let's talk about how the chemistry of a plant, because it's something I've always been fascinated, fascinated by, relates to the, um, how could I put this? How does the chemistry of a plant relate to its, its ritualistic use and the quote-unquote sort of intelligence of that plant? Because if you look at what you're saying about ayahuasca, you're saying DMT seems to be, even if it's extracted or synthesized, uh, a gateway molecule that opens up perception so that we connect with other dimensions or other levels of reality. Um, when people take it isolated by itself, it seems to have, it de- they definitely have a sense of being transported elsewhere, but the dimension that they're describing seems to be very machine-like, very technological in nature. There's no real warmth to it or feeling like, you know, of homecoming or all of these insights. Uh, you know, people often describe on ayahuasca that there's an intelligence which is privy to all of their deepest, darkest thoughts, all of their history, all of their chronology. And people don't really report that on, on, on chemical DMT. So could you just tell us what where you at with that? Why do you think that is? What's the vibe? Do you think that a plant like ayahuasca has DMT and it maybe uses that lead molecule to connect you to another realm and then it's the rest of the plant that guides that? Deep in the mung Deep in the mung <laughs> That's a good one, Alan. <laughs> Deep in the mung Deep in the mind. You mentioned something earlier that really um, encapsulates and answers that directly and simply, in that um, the Western materialist viewpoint will say, what's the active ingredient in here? Oh, it's this one, it's X. Well, let's just take X and amplify it, you know, extract it and amplify it, and then we'll just, you know, put it on um, in our medications. Mm. And um, that that's the basis of pharmaceuticals, you know. And, and yes, they do have, they do work. However, as we know, that lots and lots of pharmaceuticals have, you know, side effects. And mm. when you work with uh, herbal medicines, um, the the actual philosophy is that you're using, you know, when you take the plant and you use it holistically, I use a lot of different elements. They tend to balance out everything. I mean, that mm. there's a complex chemistry. I mean, we, let's not go into the extreme details here, but the Generally, those plants, the chemistry is, is complex, but it's equally balancing so that if it is used in a, in a medicinal way, that there are, the side effects are much, much more minimal than they are when they, we take it and we, you know, we extract the uh, active ingredient. So it's, it's, this, it's this integrative approach which really makes a difference. Mm. And, 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 and if you take it to another level, it's, it's because you're using the intelligence of the plant. You know, it's, mm. it's there for a reason. So we, this, is, this really explains why... You know, if you just take this, you know, this so-called spirit molecule and you, uh, you know, you, you consume it, um, you're going to have an experience. But <clears throat> when you take ayahuasca, you're actually working with the integrity of the entire plant and its presence mm. and its intelligence. And that's what can guide your experience. That's what can look deeply into you and select the kind of experience that you need in order to progress. Because let's remember here that um, with ayahuasca, every single experience is different. It's not like, oh, this is this amount, we're going to have this kind of experience or you're going to yes. get this kind of level. It's extremely malleable and, and, and dynamic according to who you are, where you are in your development, how many sessions you've had. I mean, it, it, I've only seen it repeat itself once and that, even that repetition across two sessions was a direct lesson for something that somebody didn't get. They were being very stubborn 
and, so, the, and an exact dynamic happens. So, so that's something that's that happened to someone else. When you say that you've seen uh, an experience be very similar or repeat itself mm -hmm. from one session to another, an experience that you were having or an experience that you were facilitating for someone else? Experience I was facilitating. I mean, the, ah. the lady came out and said, I just had the same experience down for last detail as I did last time. And I've only, it's, in 10 years, that's only happened once. And then, and then we, you know, and, and, but she, she ruminated and that reflected and said, I think I know why because I was really refusing to hear the first time that the, the message came across. And then the medicine basically told me again, well, if you won't listen, let's just run this through again, shall we? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Until you do mm. listen. Sort of, like, was, sort of like life. That's very interesting. Well, it is a bit like life. We get the same situations and scenarios, you know, reformat, you know, reappearing until we get the message or the or the lesson. Yes. Yeah, it's almost like what you're describing is that you, you know nature um, is this really really intelligent chemist. You know, it's almost like these plants that contain 600 or 800 alkaloids do so for a very specific reason. And I think that's mm. one of the sort of flaws in our thinking in the way that we approach pharmacology in general as a science. As you're saying, we say, eliminate every other chemical but the most important one. And we don't understand that often a molecule like cocaine hydrochloride, which comes in, in coca salt, um, it comes in the coca plant, or for example, um, the opioid molecules that come inside poppy plants, uh, or even uh, something like DMT, which comes inside ayahuasca, they are so strong, but nature designs them in the midst of these other chemicals, which, as you say, buffer, change the way in which the primary one is metabolized. And I think that's something that we're really missing in terms of our pharmacology. And, and one of the misconceptions that I constantly um, sort of come across is when you talk to people about natural medicine, so taking something in its whole form, they'll be like, oh, homeopathy. <laughs> Um, and you sort of have to uh, make clear to people who believe in this absolute division between allopathic medicine and mm -hmm. plant medicine, you sort of have to make clear to people, no, no, hold on, plant medicine is not homeopathy. Plants contain very, very real chemicals, some of which are strong enough to kill you, some of which are you know, incredibly complex molecules. It just so happens that they also contain other things as well. So, um, yeah, that's just a misperception that I think constantly gets encountered uh, when you try and is that, explain. Is that your experience, Ryan? Yeah, very much so. I think, I think there's a, there's a oh. general perception that there's allopathic medicine and that all plant medicine is in some way homeo homeopathic. <laughs> um, so, anyway, I just, I just wanted to address that. And I just think it's fascinating mm. um, that these, these, these molecules and these complexes of molecules are designed in such complex, holistically interactive ways. Um, I think we mentioned last, last, last time we were talking about the lost language of plants, yes. which again, uh, Stephen Harrod Boone begins to outline and articulate really beautifully and really simply and really clearly the complexity of that in interaction between a specific plant and its environment and the way that it can respond in real, real time to generate the chemical um, um, organization it needs in order to respond to environmental changes, whether it's under attack. It can even, you know, if a caterpillar is eating its leaf, it can direct certain chemicals to a specific leaf or a specific branch. I mean, that is, as, as far as I'm concerned, extremely intelligent and an ex extreme mastery of, 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 I mean, how, how, you know, can we do this for ourselves in terms of on command, basically, you know, generate, you know, uh, 
specific uh, chemicals in such an elegant and specific way. We, we do genuinely, I mean, we do do that in response to the environment, but this is, this is, um, whole, we're talking about, new level, uh, yeah. yeah, beings that we've traditionally just said, oh, well, they're just, you know, they're just pretty dumb and they're just there. But no, there's a lot going on and so much responsiveness that this, this whole debate now is shifting that scientists are beginning to say, actually, you know, depending on how you frame it, you know, it's very possible to see these, these as, as intelligent beings within this environment that are responding and adapting and thriving, you know, and competing and, 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 and really, um, are, are an, an integral part of that environment, not only within themselves as, 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 as isolated beings, but in supporting a whole ecosystem. That was yeah. the other thing in the book that, that really important in terms of you know the, the life forms that they support. Absolutely, I loved. Um, Bruna had this. Ex- by the way, we're talking about Stephen Bruna. S T E P H E N B U H N E R. He's got two fantastic books on plants' role in the environment and plant intelligence. They actually, it's not like a biology book. It's actually very esoteric and incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. The one is called The Lost Language of Plants, um, and the other one is called Plant Intelligence and the Imaginal Realm, which I remember after reading, I went on an absolute rant. I think I wrote a two-page Facebook rant, and I was like, you have to read this book. It is blowing my entire view of reality to smithereens. It was really, it stands out as probably one of the best books I've ever read. But um, mm-hmm. what he describes, he says, you know, imagine a physical organism. It has all these different ways that it can react to its environment. It can run, it can jump, it can attack, it can defend, it can cower, it can hide, it can do all of these different things. Um, and if you look at plants, the way in which they respond, as you were saying, to environmental stimuli is through chemicals. They, they create chemistry that helps them navigate and respond to and survive in the environment. So it's pretty damn interesting because... When you watch those videos of like they, they put a camera up in a forest and they time lapse a plant and how it grows over, you know, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Those things are very much alive, dude. You'd have to be a real mm-hmm. skeptic to look at that thing on a time lapse and not say that it is doing some crazy shit. It's just, it's out of the sort of, <laughs> it's out. Of, yeah, I mean, those are, they're sneaky fuckers. They definitely up to things in the forest. Um, but it, it just happening at, at a sort of um, time scale that doesn't look very urgent to us. You know, you walk through the forest, you have the sense that maybe things are alive, but they, it's happening at such a slow time scale that you just don't get it. Um, anyway, so as Boona says... Did you ever, did you ever see... We're yeah? just going to say, did you ever see there was, a, there was a... With the original Star Trek, there was this episode where um, uh, somehow there were these beings on board the, the, the Starship Enterprise and, and uh, they, they, somehow the crew knew this but they couldn't see them. And then they realized that they were a completely different time frame. They had to somehow create an interface where they sped up or slowed down in order to see these beings. You know? And uh, they were just as intelligent as, as the crew. Yeah, I, rem- I remember that. I don't remember the specific episode, it's titled, but I remember that uh, that they were out of phase somehow in terms of yes. time dimensions. Oh, man, I love, exactly that. I love that term because, um, look, I don't want to go on this whole tangent, but um, another thing that... that Stephen Boona talks about is he talks about sensory gating. He talks about this a lot in, in plant intelligence in the imaginal realm. And mm-hmm. to, to summarize it, he's basically saying that the function of conscious mind, which we view in the reductionist worldview as generating consciousness is actually to, to eliminate data from the outside world and sort of funnel all that data through. So you've got, you know, you've got infrared light and UV light and all these different spectrums of light 
and then you have thousands of different frequencies of sound and there's all these different levels of reality, subatomic, the quantum level, the macroscopic level of physiology. And what the brain is ultimately doing is just eliminating data and whittling that data down to its most simple. What temperature is it? How am I standing? How's my body working? How tired am I? You know, when am I going to have sex? What am I going to eat? The most basic levels of human consciousness. So, and I, I love that idea. It's also something that Aldous Huxley talks about is that the function of consciousness is eliminative. It's there to reduce the data stream that's coming in through the senses uh, and make it navigable so you can walk through, you know, you can get, get on with it. Because if you're walking through, aware of, sort of walking through the physical world, aware of every light spectrum, every sound spectrum, every level of reality, it would be quite overwhelming. And there are cases of people whose whose sensory calibration is very different to quote unquote normal people, and they very much are, uh, you know, overloaded and find it difficult to navigate. We could say that certain, certain uh, there are certain children that are super sensitive. Yeah. That any sound is is actually painful for them, you know. Or are you, or are you talking or about like the, the esoteric level, like an indigo child, someone who's very empathic and sensitive to sort of. Or are you talking people who are generally just more sensitive to audio and and, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not talking esoteric. I'm talking about okay. actually just as a medical condition that they uh, find yeah. it very difficult to to navigate the world when their sensory uh, apparatus is so so sensitive, basically. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and and in a sense, uh, Ryan, it, in a, in a sense, there are also if you take it, that's on a that's a very gross material level in terms of sensory impressions through your nervous system. But <clears throat> there are also those people who who esoterically see things that most of us don't see. I mean, the first case is I'm talking about, you know, people's sounds and, and yeah. touch and all that, very five senses. But then there are people out there who, who actually, um, you know, they, they see the spirits, they see, you know, the energetics, they, you know, mm. they calibrated at a much higher level. And actually um, a couple of things happen, you know, the Firstly, there's no support because, you know, if they say to people, this is what I'm seeing, you know, the people say, well, you're, you know, they don't have a framework to understand that. And they just dismiss them or they could you know, ridicule them and say, you're nuts. And that can be very disheartening for a person who's going through that. And secondly, the actual level of, of input can be so overwhelming that they, they just feel they're going crazy. Hmm. And uh, I've known people like this that, you know, it's, it's they're on all the time. They can't switch it off. And, it, and actually, it's, it's a curse. Uh, until they learn essentially to recalibrate or to how to harness that and and one of the keys is 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 you know um, uh, to to work shamanically because this is the realm the sh- shamanic realm, but that you have to learn how to control it you know it's it's a native what these people are experiencing is a native gift that is is really unharnessed and uh, undisciplined and mm. um, they have it for a reason because obviously they they're they're natively born with that but you know, it, until they harness it, it can be very distressing. And I remember being on the east coast of Taiwan, having this conversation with his mother, talking about the daughter, and the daughter's going through all this kind of, you know, multidimensional experiences, and the mother has no frame of reference within which to put this. And in fact, I mean, if we if we'd gone back a hundred years, these people were Aboriginals, uh, natives, uh, tribal people of the island. And then colonialization happened, uh, and uh, there was a lot of Christianization, and so they've left their old ways. Now, if their the the grand great grandfathers had seen this child, they would have known what to do with her. Basically, mm-hmm. they put her through an initiation and a training program, and she'd have been um, molded in an appropriate way so she could work with her skills. 
but you know and then i actually had this conversation with the mother saying this is actually what's happening to her that she is opening up to different levels and realms and she needs a teacher she needs a guide she needs a mentor and you know but because of the 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 the, the uh, belief system that she had she didn't want to even go there she just said no no she's just crazy she's just crazy and wow. and leave it like that. Wow. So I'm afraid I I don't I didn't have any follow up, but I don't think the prognosis is good for someone like that because you know obviously they're suffering until they find the right frame yeah. to work with. Now now you look I'll come back to the neurotransmitter thing because you've just opened up something I really wanted to talk to you about. Many times, what we would describe in the West as psychological illness or psychiatric illness, you you're saying now, and I've read extensively that. Sometimes, in certain cases, these are what's looked at shamanically as almost like a calling. People start d displaying symptoms of schizophrenia or hallucinations, things that would be described by psychiatry as madness. And in the right context, as you're saying, of this, this young lady growing up with a different belief system in Asia, that may have been uh, viewed in a different context. Oh, this child's having a shamanic calling or they're due to be a healer or they you know, are in touch with subtle esoteric energies or whatever it is. And it may then um, get, get, you know, the community assists to integrate this person that's going through. And instead of spending the rest of their life in a, in a psychiatric institution, they actually turn into this amazing shaman. Now, of course, there are genuine healer. cases, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. healer or shaman or um, whatever it is. Of course, there are cases of um, people who are just fucking mad <laughs> as well. So, so I wanted to ask you, um, how, firstly, how would you tell the difference between someone who's just lost their marbles and maybe is, is, is beginning a, a genuine sort of period of, of being called to work at a higher level with the spirits or yeah. I know because when you talk about the, the African cultures, the sort of madness, um, the dark night of the soul, the going through this period of mental um, incoherence is also part of the calling to be a Sangoma. Am I correct? Mm -hmm. They can be. Yeah. They, they, they call it the calling. They, yeah. They call it the calling. And I was very surprised um, because my girlfriend is studying, uh, she, she's in her last year of medicine, so she did a, a psychiatric ward uh, rotation very recently. And in her sort of um, six-year medical school workbook, there were these list of symptoms that people often report during the early stages of, of schizophrenia. And there was a whole chapter about how that's got to be interpreted in the local sort of um, context yeah. of Sangormas. It, it was just really interesting. So I wanted, to, I wanted to hear what you said about that is how many people that are, think they're losing their shit are being called to work with, you know, to, to be a healer or whatever. And then how many people that think they're being called to be a healer are maybe just full of shit? <laughs> well, it's going to be something you're going to work out on a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, interestingly enough, this is, this is very much the field of what a medical anthropologist is interested in because the, <clears throat> the way a culture frames it does determine how you uh, evaluate this. And if I was going to be a psychiatrist um, um, working in maybe, um, you know, Scotland or, or, or Minnesota and somebody presents those symptoms, I might veer towards, you know, DSM-5 classification. Mm. Uh, but if I'm somebody working within South Africa with a very strong cultural matrix of this kind of phenomena, then I'd have to bear this in mind that this may be possible, possibly a manifestation of, 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 of what is locally known as the calling. Does this make sense? I mean, <clears throat> this is called it, it, intercultural psychology, yeah, basically. It absolutely does make sense. And I, 
it just presents yeah. all these challenges because as you're saying, if you if you get brought up in the Judeo Christian worldview or the Western reductionist worldview, and you are genuinely having an experience which may be esoteric or sort of transcendental in nature, there is very little way that Western psychiatry can help you navigate that short of medicating you, <laughs> short of wrapping you up in a little blanket and putting you in a dark room. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So it really is a shit do, one. Do, I mean, and I'm joking about called, it. But yeah. Yeah. There's something called the Jerusalem syndrome. Have you ever heard of this? I would imagine it's when people think that they're Jesus Christ. No. Well, they go to Jerusalem and then suddenly they, they, they flip out and they have all these religious visions and, you know, they exactly, they, they all turn into Jesus, you know. And, uh, and, and you know, sometimes they end up there, they're there for a year or two, just, you know, in this kind of ecstatic, you know, religious phase. And, uh, and sometimes they pull out, sometimes they don't. I mean, it's actually, it is a syndrome. The people, people have recognized this is a, a thing that happens. Wow. But on the one hand, who's to say that this is not an authentic, you know, I personally, personally, in all my experience, I've never seen the iconography of, of, of Christianity in my visions or in my experiences. And I'm open-minded. If, if in the beginning of my work, you know, Mary Jesus and you know, Mary, Mary Magdalene and Jesus and, and you know, the whole you know, caboodle presented them to themselves to me, I would have gone, Oh, maybe there's some validity to this. I'm experiencing yeah. this, but as it happens, it yeah. never happened. It never presented itself. So, um, you know, but I can't. I can't generalize and say, well, that that therefore it's it's you know it's irrelevant or it's not true. It just does not happen for me, and it's it. They, I didn't have an authentic experience around that. But if you had that when you're journeying with the plant medicines, who's to say that this is not true and valid for you? Yeah. true and authentic for you. I mean, so, I actually um, attended. You have to a, have a, a, relativism. Sorry to interrupt you, but I, I attended an ayahuasca ceremony um, with a young man. Very, very cool. Very mild ceremony. But um, there was distinct sort of uh, Christian iconography and visuals um, that he was using. Uh, you know, as there was, there was like a cross on the wall and he had some sort of Catholic or Christian artifacts present during the ceremony. And he explained it just that that was his... Um, metaphorical sort of personification of goodness. And he was just using the metaphor of Christ, which I thought was really, I mean, I thought it was a bit freaky for five minutes. <laughs> and then I thought it was really cool, actually. Um, but, but yes, yeah, sorry, I, I interrupted you. Please, please go on. So, um, no, I was just, it, it, <clears throat> and so, for example, I mean, um, within the way I work, it's, it's very focused on healing. But if you take, uh, the Santo Daime people, the Brazilian ayahuasca church, yeah. you know, they are very deeply steeped in, in Christian iconography and practices and beliefs. And for them, this is a sacrament and it's a, it's a gateway to access this kind of religious experience. Wow. Uh, and I presume, you know, there are, there are people who also have experiences that, you know, um, contain images, uh, visions of, of, of those, uh, elements. So, um, it's not my path, but I can't disregard it. You see, so yeah. I, can't, I just I can't validate it. You know, it's not my experience, not my path. So, um, and, but very often in terms of working with with plant medicines, that they the, the visions that occur sometimes are framed within uh, culturally relevant uh, frameworks. You know, that mm. people see the things, the you know, the the, the 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 images and symbols are translated into images and symbols that the person may, may be familiar with or comfortable with. 
um, in order to get a message across because yeah, the plant yeah, spirits might yeah, be, you know, yeah. more flexible like that. Say so this is uh, what you understand. I think that's reflected as well in that initial data that was uh, collected on psilocybin and mystical experiences, uh, where the people, I think 90% of the people that did the experiment were just taking a controlled dose of psilocybin in a clinical setting, but with an aim of having a mystical or transcendent experience. They all reported having subjective, transcendent, or mystical and extremely meaningful experiences. But as you're saying, each one reported the symbolism and context of that experience in a sort of religious or spiritual context that they were already familiar with. So that's really mm-hmm. very fucking interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Now, and that's now a, the feature of yeah. the human mind, I think. Actually. Yeah. It's a feature of the human mind. If you take uh, the Kurosawa movie, Rashomon, I think it's Rashomon. And uh-huh. yeah, basically, you know, this incident happens and then he shows seven different viewpoints and seven different understandings of the same narrative. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the substance, it's what you bring to it that's also important. It's you, how you interface with that particular intelligence. That's very, very interesting, man. That's something that's also some uh, a truth that uh, you gain as you get older, as you gain a little bit of maturity, as you start realizing there is... Multiple you, realities, right? Yeah, the, exactly as you're saying. One, one incident, two people in a room, and all the different levels of perspective and projection that can happen in a, just the most simplest of situations. So, That's right. Uh, I mean, you're talking about, you know, you know boyfriend-girlfriend. E- <laughs> exactly. realities are girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, There are. I mean, there's his reality, her reality, his projection of her reality, her projection of his reality. It's such a, it's such a complex thing. Um, and that's also, of course, one of the... One of the lessons of plant medicine is there is, you know, you are literally projecting your narrative onto the blank screen that is reality in front of you. Mm. Uh, and there well, was that's the original that, definition of psychedelic, isn't it? Because her, uh, uh, her, uh, is it Herbert Osmond in 56, he basically coined the phrase psychedelic, which yeah. is uh, mind manifesting, you know, a substance that manifests the content uh. of the mind or, you know, the, the... did you know that? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Oh. Yeah, mind <laughs> manifesting. Okay, mind manifesting, and sometimes you know, in certain levels of working, you you definitely see. Oh, this is wow! I didn't know this was going on with me, or didn't know this is the contents of, of 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 what I have. But it's yeah. definitely, uh, you know, that's that's a, that's definitely a stage of of the work is to to, to shake out the container. Oh, look at this! <laughs> that's very interesting, man. Now. I, w- I just wanted to, to, to conclude something I was talking about earlier very quickly. Um, we were saying that um, basically you, you get a phenomenon called sensory gating, which is mm. the brain taking this infinite sea of information that we are surrounded with and narrowing it or filtering it down, um, eliminating a whole bunch of it so that it can come into conscious awareness so we can have a conscious idea of what's going on at any given moment. And what Stephen Booner talks about, which I, it, it sort of deeply struck my, my fascination, is he says, serotonin, the neurotransmitter, is the chemical gatekeeper of that process, okay? So if I'm, I'm driving along a road and all of a sudden a, a young child runs into the road and suddenly my entire uh, attention is diverted to this immediate event. My nervous system goes through the roof. My concentration goes up. I slam on brakes. I'm, all of a sudden, I was you know, looking at my GPS or texting some, some person, and now I'm totally 100% present on this exact moment. What we see is that 
serotonin is the 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 um, chemical mediator of that process so it will decide for the brain what is allowed to cross the level of conscious awareness what is what is being prioritized in terms of my focus and my attention okay um and he goes on to give a couple of of examples of how that also happens in the animal kingdom so for example if you take a bee that's um operating as an individual organism an individual bee and you take its uh, blood serotonin level, you find no serotonin. But when that bee is switched to hive mind, when it's operating as a collective organism, as opposed to an individual organism, and you do a blood serotonin analysis, you will find lots of serotonin. So serotonin seems to be the, the gatekeeper that switches, um, that switches uh, hive, hive organisms like bees or schools of fish or whatever, and lets them communicate as a, as a macro-organism as opposed to individuals, which I really thought was creepy and very fascinating. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a neurotransmitter that en- enhances kind of um, uh, sensory awareness of, of, the, of other beings around you. It's like emerging. Yeah, it seems to, at multiple levels, serotonin, yeah, serotonin is deciding what makes it into conscious awareness or not. It controls our sense of sensory gating, what's prioritized, what's led into awareness, but it also controls to some extent uh, inter, inter-individual communication in other species. So it has all these different roles in, in different species. Mm-hmm. In aquatic species, it controls reproductive rates. In bees, it controls social bonding and hive mind coordination. It's, it's fucking crazy that um, even plants are using things like serotonin to signal. You were talking earlier about how a plant can mm-hmm. signal another plant create different chemicals, send them through the mycelial mats underneath the, the, the ground. Mm-hmm. And there are neurotransmitters involved in those processes as well. Serotonin can be used to signal certain other plants, send distress signals, et cetera, et cetera. So you have this molecule, which is absolutely ubiquitous in natural systems in different roles. So, I mean, psychiatrists will tell you serotonin controls mood in human beings or controls happiness. We know it controls sensory gating. It controls hive mind behavior in certain animals. So it's, it's omnipresent in the environment, right? And then you have plants which are making things like psilocybin and, and, and um, uh, tryptamine molecules which are almost identical to serotonin molecularly. Isn't that strange? It's, it's, it's strange and beautiful. I mean, that, 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 strange, yeah. that we can have access to this and, and ourselves manipulate our own brain chemistry through the ingestion of these beautiful, beautiful gifts, natural gifts. I mean, to be able to manage yeah. states and, and explore uh, the, 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 the parameters of our consciousness with, with these beautiful ambassadors is, uh, uh, it just fills me with gratitude that this is possible. You know, I mean, and it doesn't, it, you know, for the listeners uh, out there, it, it's, you know, we can talk about ayahuasca, but ayahuasca is actually very demanding uh, process, and it really, it's, it, you really are being asked to step over a, a significant threshold in terms of experience. But there are other uh, mm. plant spirit medicines out there that are much more accessible. I mean, the one I'm working with, <clears throat> starting to focus on uh, predominantly now is cacao, because um, mm. it's it's ubiquitous in terms of its presence on the planet as chocolate, but very few people have experienced it in its raw organic form. And its raw organic form is a very different uh, creature to what you get commercially available. It's a bit like tobacco mm. <laughs> and cigarettes, you know, organic tobacco mm. and cigarettes. So, and, 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 and part yeah. of that is that when you um, um, take those 
beans and you harvest them and you then you roast them and you exp expose them to a high high temperature industrial processing, you lose a lot of its native uh, biochemistry, and it's that. And those those chemicals, those uh, potential potential, you know, neuromodulators, neurotransmitters that are present in the raw organic bean, are really what can take take uh, when they're ingested can really uh, provide phenomenally powerful experiences that are non-visionary. It's not a visionary um, entheogen. We can talk about this the, this whole plant intelligence sort of thing in the context of something that is a lot more accessible, mm. and that is cacao. Mm -hmm. Not to be confused with coca, which is very different. Cacao is the chocolate. The precursor to chocolate, basically. Plant, right? It's, it's plant. what chocolate is made of, yeah. Precursor to chocolate. Basically. And I was saying, essentially, that it's, it's this, the very industrialized process of making chocolate is where we lose a lot of the um, uh, potential health benefits that raw cacao can bring us. Um, so, <clears throat> in, in a sense... Um, its actual biochemistry is pretty amazing. It has some very powerful antioxidants. It also has some MAOI, MAOI, some actual enzyme inhibitors that potentiate the effects uh -huh. of these neurotransmitters uh, so that they last in our system a lot longer. So we have basically the usual suspects. There's serotonin and there's dopamine and there's something called the anandamine and that's basically a bliss chemical. And... Um, and that really, people, when they experience uh, a, a cacao ceremony and they imbibe uh, properly made cacao, is they, that's the first thing that, that they feel is this expansive sense of unity and bliss. And for me personally, also, what I, I, I get within you know, 10 minutes is this shutdown of, of thoughts and busyness. And it's just this being able to sit in the present moment without any sense of hurry, any sense of needing to do something, just pure being. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's wow. really, really phenomenal. Wow. Yeah. So there's a, a, okay. another chemical that no. also induces this, uh, that we get when we are in love. So we have love, bliss, high serotonin levels, you know. Oxy, oxytocin. No, it's not oxytocin. It's uh, pheophanol, oh, okay. I think it is. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Insanely interesting. Is that the um, association between chocolate and romance? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, there's another element which is actually it has some aphrodisiac, aphrodisiacal uh, qualities. And I'll just I'll just share this with you. A, a friend of mine uh, messaged me the other day. He he sat with me in, in ceremony and he said, "I'm going to make some you know cacao according to specifications. Would it be okay if I you know." got romantic with my girlfriend, you know, and I said, absolutely, this is, if it's between you two in, in private, designed for, it's designed for connection and for lovemaking and all that. Wow. So, so he messaged me later and said, well, that was the most intense three hours of my life. <laughs> oh, wow, that's intense, Good man. Not to, not to divert, but a, a very similar thing happened to me with Damiana. I don't know if you know Tonero Tufusa. i it. It's a plant that they use in... Yeah, it's very interesting. I came across it. I was I was in the stage of like, obviously, obviously, I was making too much money back when I was half famous, and I was just ordering every plant I could find on the internet. I was like, I ordered in. That's how I found coca, actually, which has been a lifelong relationship that I've maintained. But I was ordering in. Um, what's that stuff they take in the Pacific? Cover, cover, for social cover. bonding. Cover, yeah. I was ordering in cover, and I was ordering Damiana, and I was ordering hundreds of plants, but. I got quite into Damiana because it's anxiolytic 
And it also apparently is an aphrodisiac for females. I had never had that experience. So one night I had a birthday. I had some friends around. And I was just kept on making Damiana tea. And um, I wasn't with a partner at the time, but my friend sent me a message the next morning. He said, man, <laughs> whatever that shit was, I need some more of it. Um, so, anyway, well, so it really worked for him um, and, and his partner, I guess. Yeah, he said it was prolific for his partner, for the, for the female. But if you're saying that um, cacao is, is, a, is an aphrodisiac for both sexes, I think that's something... Um, appealing, you know. I think it's I think it's cool for people to even inside their relationships um, experiment with something other than alcohol because most people are either sort of sober or they drink to bond with each other because it breaks down inhibitions, which is such a p- really bad, ineffective, unsustainable way to bond with your partner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I find mm. so these sorts of things like taking cacao with your partner, setting a little bit of intention, creating a little bit of space, maybe having a enhanced sexual or not experience i think that's very powerful and i think a huge part of the reason why people use so much alcohol is they just don't have better tools people need tools to help them connect to their partners or relax or bond or be present or enhance their neurochemistry and i think that's where the you know the revolution is happening where people are starting to say well let's you know what does nature give us to do this it's curious right but um if you look at the history of alcohol i mean i've got a friend in Egypt. Filling me in a bit on the details, but alcohol was originally a sacrament. It was originally a vehicle for transcendence, and and it, it's like all these things that uh-huh. we see, like tobacco and its original form and what it is today. You know, cacao and how it is, you know, being denatured in many ways through the industrial process, and we have chocolate, which is a, a distant echo of its potential, and we have, uh, you know, alcohol and its you know, from the Egyptian mystery schools and the Bacchanalian traditions and what we have today of just getting basically, you know, hammered yeah, as fast as we can. I mean, there's, there's very, very different ways of, of using it in context. And I think, you know, this really reveals, uh, in a sense, how we've lost, you know, connection with these originally uh, transcendental and, transcendent and, and sacred substances. Yeah. You know, Don Roberto, doesn't this come down to, you know, we're talking about really we, everything we're talking about is, a, is, a, is an extension of the, our worldview in the West. You either believe, you know, like, like Einstein says, you either live your life like everything's magic or like nothing is. And that couldn't be more true for what we're saying because for a, for a, for a group of people that believe in capitalism and extractivism and that there's no form of consciousness that is relevant at all other than humans and everything is dead and plants don't have any intelligence and the natural world is just this dumb thing. The stimulants and inebriants that we have chosen as a culture perfectly support that worldview. Especially and then if when they you sort of switch over... Yes, but like coffee, oh, that's, that's allowable because it makes you work harder. Fine, you know. Yeah, it makes you work harder and not think too hard about what you're working on. And the on. alcohol is allowable because you know, it allows so, you to decompress after you've been working so hard within a manageable framework. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's what McKenna was on about. He was saying that the, the things that have made it through this threshold of acceptability... Sorry, man, there's a lot of shuffling going on there. Are you are you rubbing something against the mic on your side? Oh, sorry, yes, maybe, maybe. Okay, go on. No, just checking. Just go on. Um, Anyway, so yeah, he, McKenna just said and really resonated with me. We've, as a society, we've chosen a whole series of inebriants and intoxicants and stimulants, which absolutely solidify and support and uh, reinforce our very limited worldview of that, you know, everything is dead. And then what you're saying is, 
even with alcohol, there's a sacred context. There's a ritualistic uh, use which is beneficial. Uh, even with cacao, something that we eat every day but is only like a shadow of its former self, there's a, you know, a ritualistic context, a deeply meaningful experience to be had. But you have to first believe that there's something more to plants than just their chemicals. Well, I'm so not sure about that. Ryan. It's very, I mean, I'm very not interesting. Sure whether that, that, yeah. that's a pre prerequisite in order to to get something out of these experiences, because. Um, oh no! Sorry, I was saying it's a prerequisite to actually try. Oh, yeah, it. To, to, yes, <laughs> definitely. I mean, you don't have to. I, I encourage people yeah. to be just to go with their experience and define their reality according to what they experience. But yeah, you have to at least give it a go. <laughs> give it a chance. Yeah, you have to give Absolutely. it a go. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I've I've got some testimonials so, of, of of from recent people in South Africa who who've uh, sat with me in the ceremony, and, and it's just unbelievable the changes and the and the experiences that they've had. You know, because it's, so it seems very innocuous. It seems like oh, I'm just going to you know uh, participate in this cacao ceremony, and you know somebody can can facetiously say, oh, you're going to be drinking hot chocolate. No, we're actually going to have a container. Well, I've talked about this earlier. Having that container, the sacred container of, of space and time, to commune and to invoke and to have the presence, full presence of that being, and and then to participate and have its original form uh, to be to be there and to be supported by it and have its full um, spectrum of of uh, biochemistry present to interface with us. And to work on many, many different healing levels, not only physically in terms of the antioxidants and the cardioprotectiveness of it, and uh, also mentally in terms of, um, of, of, of altering the brain chemistry. So there's a very positive brain chemistry that we have, but also spiritually of, of really opening the heart and allowing us to go into the shadow aspects of ourselves. I mean, it's got so many different levels. And, and I'm, I'm increasingly, the more I learn about it, the more I practice it, the more respect I have towards it and the more um, impassioned I become about it because, you know, it's, it's all very well and, and working as an ayahuasquero, it's, it's all very well having done this work and, and it's really phenomenally uh, powerful work and transformative work, but there, there really needs to be um, some kind of uh, um, advocacy for something that is not so threatening or not so challenging or not so daunting. Uh, that is easily accessible and then can hopefully from the inside from from the inside a person's experience transform the way the way they interact with um, the world through this this one or or series of experiences working with cacao for example man i've 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 never heard someone explain uh, cacao to me like this and I had read about some people doing cacao ritualistically sort of within the techno scene of Berlin. And I thought, oh God, <laughs> fucking hippies have thought of some, some other stupid thing to do. Um, but hearing you describe it like this, I'm, I'm really in awe and really um, sort of uh, excited to try mm-hmm. it. So hopefully I'll get the chance to, to do some cacao oh, with you. When hopefully you in back. October we can, we can hook up. I mean, the thing is, okay, so here, here's the thing. It's not just about the mechanical, oh, here's the ingredients, throw it together. Because I come from a training with, with plant spirit medicines from the Amazon, there is a specific way of communing and connecting. And, um, and that's often, I, I can show people, but then sometimes they can't go away and say, we can't reproduce what you do because there is already this, like we said, the dieta, right? But the dieta is very important. And, and that's what creates the, the, the plant diet where the plant prior to, to actually working with it creates a connection so that when you invoke it, you really fully invoke it. So, um, yeah, there are different levels. I mean, of course, you know, the various people working in Berlin, they're doing what they're doing, but not all cacao ceremonies are going to be equal. And when you have somebody who has training and has 
has connection and invokes the, 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 the very spirit of that plant when you're working with it, it's a very different experience. My final question then, Don Roberta, is, you know, do you ever still get the feeling, obviously you've been doing this for a long time and you've, you've acquired each piece of knowledge chronologically, slowly and surely. But do you ever get the sense that um, s- sort of in order to be of that space, you have to be totally out of your ego? And do you ever have um, experiences working in the role play of shaman where your sort of ego comes into it? The, the, the person that you were before you became Don Roberto, the shaman, the normal dude, because we were speaking about sexuality on the, on the last show and you're saying, you know, when I'm off, I'm a normal, I'm a normal bloke. I'm a normal guy. Is there sort of a polarity, like a fight or an interaction between this role play that you have as a shaman and the normal dude who, you know, probably like the rest of us, likes tits, digs to eat potato chips, doesn't always, you know, live from his highest place. How do you sort of navigate that challenge? And obviously, please feel free to tell me to piss off and that's way too personal. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a very... Um, Apposite that you bring this up because that that normal bloke has been transformed by you know the, the experiences that have unfolded. So yes, I can access you know normal bloke quite easily, but it's not quite the same normal bloke that it was maybe ten years ago. Um, mm. And we were talking earlier about about <coughs> calibration where some people they just see the realms all the time and it's all double rainbows and unicorns and all that nonstop. And and uh, because they can't calibrate it properly, because they can't control it, it's too much. Now, the thing is, the difference for me now <laughs> is that I have the ability to access those realms, those dimensions, and to do the kind of shamanic work I need to do when it's appropriate. You know, when I'm on, I'm on. And when I'm not, I'm a regular, you know, bloke. And um, I can navigate the 3D reality like a regular person with a bit of, you know, a bit of understanding and, and perspective that's a bit different. But I don't necessarily wear my shamanism like a badge. You know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't, I'm not like an airline pilot where the first thing they say is like, you know, what do you do? I'm an airline pilot <laughs> or a teacher, right? Mm. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, People are people, and the world is what it is, and we have to navigate it, you know, in a very down-to-earth way. When I do what I do, that's special. You know, it's, it's ceremony. You know, I have to be present and articulate those skills. But when I'm not, I'm just you know, an average guy. Mm. So, and that, that's actually quite sane, because I, I have known other people who, who find it difficult to, to know when to do what. You know, they, they can't switch it off, and mm. I, can, I can switch it on, and I can switch it off, which is... a a lifesaver mm. really and um so the, here's the other thing is, is is i don't identify entirely with what's happening in ceremony why <clears throat> it's very easy for um somebody who works with such a powerful medicine to identify with the power and the effects and to think that they are the generator of this that somehow that they're special, that they have a mission, that you know God has chosen them, and they are, you know, the Messiah 2.0, whatever. You know, okay, so we call it the God complex, and it mm. is it is tempting mm. because it is such an enormous power that 
that um, is coming through the facilitator and the, 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 the dynamics are so enormous of what people are going through. It's quite easy to be subsumed by this and to be, you know, swallowed by, by this attractiveness. But that's, that's the danger because then, you know, it, it can alter your, your uh, sense of groundedness and it can alter your perspective and it can actually um, start mm. feeding on your shadow because you start, one can, mm. one can start really developing a cult-like um, um, attitude around what is one, mm. what is one doing. I don't, you know, I don't, fusing this power with your ego is a very, very, very bad idea. You know, so mm. the I think we like to believe that there's a checkpoint system in place where people who are still gravitated toward the ego would not be sort of allowed to access those higher dimensions of, you know, attaining power or knowledge from, from plant medicine. And I, I don't know where that idea comes from, because in all the books that I've read, as you're describing, there are many people who have, you know, quite a lot of knowledge about plant medicine, very, very knowledgeable people, but who are also fundamentally corrupted in terms of they are um, intent on using it to, you know, feed their own ego. Yeah, I mean, and the plants are there like a tool, like a technology, and you can use a, a knife to kill somebody, or you can use a knife to, you know, create, do complex surgery. I mean, it's your call. It depends yeah. what you're Oh, that is a beautiful metaphor. Yeah. I'm going to quote you on what that. It, what That's the medicine does, it um, amplifies your heart. So if there is darkness and mm. shadow within your, your your intentionality in your heart, even if you don't recognize it, it will amplify it. If there's if there's ambition, it will amplify it. So really, that's the 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 the, the injunction here. I would say, if anybody's really working with this, and I've I've actually seen this in so many places that this actually has does unfold that people get maniacal and and and, and messianic and, and cultish. It's basically you know to really check mm. in. Why are you doing this? Are you come because the antidote is humility and service, you know? And at, at the moment, my perspective mm. of what I'm doing is I'm simply a craftsperson, you know, or an artisan. This is, you know, not I'm not an artist, but an artisan. That's there, and there's a difference, right? Because <laughs> the artist is all about mm. the identity, the ego, the name. But the artisan, and there have been thousands of artisans, are, is simply somebody who practices a craft and does what they do. And that's what I, 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 you know, it's not about me in, in ceremony. It's about being the, the container and the, and the facilitator for the experience to unfold and to hold the experience for the other people. That's it. It's, it's you know, it's very simple. But that's... But that. could we acknowledge that it is, it is extremely rare? And one of the dangers is, you know, I was drawn to plant medicine because I was, in some ways, quite a damaged human being. Aren't we all? <laughs> um, in some way. We, we certainly are. And, you know, I have recognized as I've gotten older and matured that I have become, you know, not maniacal about it, but, uh, but preachy, obsessed at certain stages in my life. There's also been stages in my life where I've credited plants or plant medicine for work that I was really doing, you know. Um, and I've definitely, I, don't, I, don't, I no longer believe in them as a magic bullet, but as you're saying, as a tool set, which can be corrupted to the extent that the individual using them is corrupt in his or her intention. Yeah. So it's very, very complex. And sorry, bloody. sorry, I'm just this phone that I'm using to, to record this is ringing. Okay, my bad. Um, but can, can we sort of acknowledge that it's rare to find a person like you who's able to move through all of those complexities, all of that self-work, all of that stuff to actually be fit for service and this is where i wanted to end this is don howard lawler said to me there's a big difference 
between someone who aspires to service. Most people aspire to service, you know. At our core, unless you're a really fucked up evil person, we all want to help each other and ourselves and live from a higher place, etc., etc., etc. But only a tiny minority of people actually do it. And when, when, when other people are entrusting you, entrusting themselves into your care, you absolutely have a, have a responsibility to do that. And I think that's one of the messages I really wanted to get across in this podcast is this, this shit ain't for kids. You have to have someone who's absolutely dedicated and, and as you say, is, very, is checking in with themselves very regularly and saying, Oi, why am I doing this? Um, so, you know, I knew if I had you on the podcast and, and you were so, uh, a maniac sorcerer, that that would reveal itself over the three mm-hmm. hours and you've been absolutely so consistent and it's, it's absolutely clear what your intention is in mm. the space. And I've only ever met one other person that I held in such, you know, I'm not blowing smoke if you're a bum or whatever. Um, <laughs> I've only ever met one other person that I regard in, in such high regard when it comes to uh, a level of integrity and also coherence because it's, it's, it's so refreshing to hear someone who's so coherent and open in their explanations and willing to sort of discuss and analyze on the spot. Instead of just saying, oh, you know, you'll understand when it's your time, my child, you know, drink the medicine and shut up. Trust me. Um, I think that's a real sign of self-confidence. So that's what I wanted to get across is having heard all the work that's gone into this. Be very, very careful who you undergo these experiences with, because there is a very high barrier to entry of people who can, you know, navigate that responsibly. Well, no, it's a a very low barrier to entry, but it's very, it's very demanding uh, toll in order to do it properly. And I'd say that the, I mean, because let's face it, you can look up the instructions to make these kind of medicines on the internet and order the ingredients and any, any fool can do that. However, the realization yeah. that this is really uh, sacred territory and it's pr- a very profound work and the responsibility of guiding others is something that only the individual can, can, can uh, assume that responsibility. Now, here's the thing. Um, if the practitioner is not constantly seeking to evolve and to heal themselves, you know, and to do the very healing work and to train and, and, and really blood, sweat, tears, puke, shit, the whole thing, then, you know, they can only take you as far as they've gone themselves. You know, I mean, like I said, we've talked about it earlier, the person that sits in a plane and thinks they can fly the airplane, good luck with that, you know, because that's completely delusional. Mm. You know, you have to go through the whole process. You have to go through the whole transformation. You have to earn your wings, so to speak. It's, there's no shortcuts. It really isn't. And we're unfortunately, we're in a society mm. that does believe in, you know, the magic bullet and, and, and instant gratification and shortcuts. Mm. And this, this is, they we're on plant time here, you know, and, you, and they're going to be your, your best mm. guides if you are patient enough and you're humble enough to actually, um, you know, take those, the, the, the gifts that are being offered. Yeah. Mm. It's beautiful. It's demanding. That is so intense, man. It's it's so intense. It's an amazing part. Beautifully articulated. Thank you. Dude, I I for one will be at your at your ceremony in October. Mm. Absolutely. And uh, my girlfriend and I have already agreed that um you know, short of returning back to uh Don Howard is you're the only person I would do oh, it with. Thank you. Well I'm I'm all over um, certainly in <laughs> South Africa. So so um you know, we definitely if you if you have space for us I and, will make space. And, and one of us doesn't plummet from the sky in a plane crash before then we will definitely be at everything you have the cacao ceremony the, the the ayahuasca the san pedro um where can people if this has piqued their curiosity um get more information is there a reading list you'd like is there a website 
Can people contact sure. you? I think, what I think are your best, boundaries? <laughs> what are your interpersonal boundaries? Um, <laughs> I think, well, I'm, I'm developing, actually, I'm, I'm moving from working underground, uh, obviously, to more of a public profile, so, um, which specifically with the cacao, so I can be an ambassador and a, an advocate for this work. So uh, I'll be moving in that direction. But people can write to me at the cacao shaman at gmail.com if they're interested in, in just uh, in connecting with me, the cacao shaman, all one word at gmail.com. Okay. And they could just cool. send me any request or information. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah, happy to uh, connect. Fantastic. And, and, and that's where um, you would run the bookings for the sessions that you do? Or does that run through? That's, I saw when you were in Joburg, you oh, no, I mean, that's, did it through just, a sort just of a, get, a facilitator. Getting contact first because there'll be your, your, your listeners aren't just okay. in South Africa. They'll be all, all around the world. So, you know, we could just talk about yeah, And that's how it works. Would. If somebody contacts me and reaches out and says, can you come to Chicago? I say, okay, let me look at my itinerary and we'll figure something out, you know? So I'm really open to traveling. I'm really opening to, to, to working in collaboration with people to really promote this work. Fantastic. You've given me and I think everyone a lot to think about, dude. I cannot thank you enough for, for, for giving your time like this. Thank you. My pleasure. This is deep, 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 deep in the mall. In the mall. In the mall. Greetings and hootenannies. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Because it's chocolatey, don't you see? Heavens to Murgatroyd. It puts the cocoa in Cocoa Krispies. They're as chocolatey as can be. Ooh. 